Hello and a warm welcome to the Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and here with me is my co-host and the editor of Gold, Helena Beer. How are you this week, Helena? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. Still delighting in last week's publication of the April issue of Gold. Yes, indeed. If you haven't checked that out already, make sure you head over to the Gold website and peruse the latest issue. It's bursting with features on the topics around the metaverse, routine vaccinations, the pharmaceutical industry in South Africa, and much, much more. Absolutely. But focusing on today's podcast episode, we have an interview with Louisa Luciani Silverman, the US medical head of immuno oncology at AstraZeneca. Assistant editor Isabel O'Brien chats to her about all things medical affairs, delving into data generation, qualitative and quantitative metrics, and the importance of creative recruitment, such as targeting candidates from non traditional backgrounds. Sounds fascinating. Yes, we'll also be hearing from some familiar voices on the topic of social media marketing. So focusing on two of Gold's specialisms this week. But before all of that, let's kick things off with things you might have missed. Mark, I'll let you do the honours and kick us off this week. Mm, certainly a privilege. So Novartis UK has announced partnerships with local charities to support its social mobility commitments. The company has teamed up with Social Mobility Foundation and Founders for Schools, as well as providing financial aid to a select few charities. The partnerships focus on Novartis UK's pledge for improved social access and mobility and encouraging people to realise their full potential, regardless of their background or locality. The employees involved will provide volunteering support and they'll be allocated eight hours across the year to do so. Within this scheme, they'll offer their knowledge and expertise to young people from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, providing mentoring, general career advice, job application support and CV workshops. Following on from a couple of weeks ago, there are more C-suite shakeups as Moderna names former Merck executive Arpa Garai as the new chief commercial officer. The move comes after a recent promotion at Merck in February this year to chief marketing officer Human Health. Indeed, she'll take up her position at Moderna on the 31st of May, bringing extensive experience in leading commercial teams at global biopharmaceutical companies in an evolving global healthcare environment. Arpa commented that she's grateful and excited to work with an inspiring team and looking forward to building a commercial organisation to bring the transformative impact of Moderna's mRNA science to improve lives around the world across many diseases. And ending on a high, the pharmaceutical industry has had a sparkling review according to the latest patient view survey on the corporate reputation of pharma during 2021, considering nine indicators such as integrity, support and services and patient information. It's a poll that was taken by around 2,150 patient groups between November 2021 and February 2022, focusing on the performance of pharma during 2021. Just shy of 60% of the respondents described pharma's reputation as excellent or good, and that's up 9% from 2020 and up an impressive 22% from 2016. That 2021 figure places pharma ahead of all other healthcare stakeholders for corporate reputation for the first time in the 11 years that Patient View has been tracking its reputation from the patient perspective. And this is largely driven by pharma's response to COVID, as is probably expected. But the survey also highlighted positive attitudes towards pharma's innovation, high quality product development, focus on patient safety and having patient centred strategy. 
There was also a belief that pharma could be doing more in some areas, such as transparency, access to medicines, engaging patients in R&D and other areas. So lots of things for pharma to think about. Looking more specifically at individual pharma companies, those ranked in the top five, according to the patient group survey, were GSK's Vive Healthcare, Pfizer, Roche's Genentech, Gilead Sciences and Janssen. Now, next up, we have our interview with Louisa Luciani-Silverman, U.S. Medical Head of Immuno-Oncology at AstraZeneca. As we mentioned, she caught up with our assistant editor, Isabel, to give her thoughts on some key topics and trends within medical affairs today. Yes, Louisa has an extensive background in pharma, having held senior positions at BMS and Sanofi before joining AstraZeneca. She also has a PhD, which she obtained right here in the UK at the University of Dundee. It's an impressive CV indeed. Let's hear what she had to say. So, Louisa, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, yeah, we are very excited to have you on. And I am personally because some of the topics we're going to be talking about within medical affairs today are really key areas of interest for me. So, yeah, really looking forward to the discussion. But before we get into all of that, um, we like to ask our guests a little bit about where their passion for the industry comes from. Earlier in your career, you were very involved in academia and science. So I would love to know, where did your passion for science first come from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Education has always been very important uh, to my parents. Um, And so they always encouraged my curiosity and desire to learn. Uh, beyond science. Uh, I always found myself surrounded by different types of books, uh, magazines, uh, um, you name them. And so in Italy, you have to choose what you want to study when you're just 14. And since I was decent in math, my my parents said, okay, why don't you go um, and study science? So they really encouraged my interest in STEM which I thought was quite progressive back in the days. Um, So when I was 17, um, the the last year of high school, I actually had the opportunity to travel to the US and participate in a NASA program. And that's really where my passion for science originated because I was surrounded by scientists and I really enjoyed talking about um, talking with them um, about interesting ideas. And this is what made me go into the field. However, I quickly realized that although cosmology was fascinating, it wasn't for me. Um, and you know, perhaps given the fact that uh, I lost the three of my grandparents because of cancer, when I was 19, I decided to, that I want to try to find a cure for cancer. And that's where, um, you know, it was time for me to, to go to university. And I went and studied uh, pharmaceutical biotechnology. Wow, I can't believe you went to NASA at such an, <laughs> such an early <laughs> age. That must have been an incredible experience. I mean, what was the gender divide like at that point? Were you one of the only women there? I have to say there were not many women, but that that would give you some background. That was a scholarship um, mm. that and in for a high school students and two students were selective, both of them um, women. Uh, but it was really fascinating, and you know I found myself glowing. I remember I was like uh, um, drawing craters of Mars. It was, you know. It was, and I loved it, but above all, I really loved the passion of people there and uh, you know the, what 
being part of something bigger than, than yourself. I can imagine being around people that are really at the top of their game is always incredibly inspiring, I think. Exactly. So you mentioned there that another key motivator was finding a cure for cancer, which is an absolutely incredible ambition. And I suppose led you to working in some of the academic institutions that you did, which was including obviously the very iconic Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre. Obviously, I know you spent a bit of time here and it'd be great to hear a little bit about that. But also, I'd love to know, why did you decide to leave the lab and join the pharmaceutical industry? Yes, so... um... I, I have to say, my academic, academic career was going pretty well. Um, I did my PhD here in Europe um, at the EMBL, um, which is the European Molecular Biology Lab, and then I moved to New York City as long catering. And I, I really felt I was <laughs> at the top of the game um, because, the, you know, Sloan catering is like the mecca for cancer research. But at the same time, um, I realized that life in the lab could be quite lonely. And I personally felt removed from patients. In the meantime, I met my husband and he, um, he was asked to move to Australia for work. Um, so I started, when we, we arrived in Australia, I started to networking like crazy. I reached out to people I never met before on LinkedIn. I would go to events, have coffees with anybody who would be willing to allow me to buy them a cup of coffee. And I quickly learned how much people are happy to help if they see a genuine interest and they really they see that you want to learn what the industry is about. Because at the time, I had no much understanding of what pharma was. I knew I wanted to, to, do, to cure cancer. How can I do it by joining pharma? And so it just happened that because of maybe on my background, I spoke with many people in medical affairs. And what I found very interesting and hadn't fully appreciated until then is just how hard it is for healthcare professionals to stay up to date with the latest data. And so I said, that's something that really resonated with me to be able to, to help and communicate science and ensure that doctors understood the data and, and what the data meant for them and their patients. Yeah, really interesting to hear not only why you joined pharma, but also how you kind of got into the medical affairs side of things. Also love the story of you asking anyone for coffee that would have one. <laughs> I guess it was the right uh, thing yeah. to do in Australia. They have such a great coffee culture. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, you brought up medical affairs there, which is obviously where you are working now. And I'd like to dig into dig into some of that now, if we can. So something that's really been in the news recently is real world data and real world evidence. The FDA obviously recently released some new guidance on this. What do you see the value is in medical of real world data and real world evidence for patients in particular? As you can imagine, I'm so excited <laughs> about this uh, uh, recent uh, guidance released by the FDA. Um, I think it's a great step forward uh, to benefit our patients because we know that uh, uh, patients enrolled in clinical trials not necessarily reflect the diversity of the real world, uh, mm. given inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, so this real world data can really help us understand better the patients and develop the trials that, uh, um, that can benefit even more patients. 
and what really excites me of this uh, is how we can com- it's the great opportunity to now integrate the real world data with clinical trials and medical studies in an integrated evidence plan. Um, so in all my career in pharma, what I, I think one of the main challenges that we face uh, is that perhaps uh, there is not enough coordination across clinical, medical, and our HUR team when it comes to evidence generation, or that coordination happens too late. So with this new guidance from the FDA, I think we can really um, bring all our cards uh, on the table and see what are the data that we have, what are the gaps that we have, and what's the best way to generate uh, this this evidence to inform our our clinical practice on one side or our clinical development on, on the other side. And this is really the bread and butter of medical affairs uh, that where our playground is, is the real world. Thank you for that, Luisa. Such so much potential, um, I think, as you've really accurately captured. And I like what you said there about the real world being the playground of medical affairs. I think that's quite <laughs> quite a nice way of putting it, actually. It also leads me on quite well to my next question, which really is about measuring the value of medical affairs. Um, This is something we spoke about in gold quite a few issues ago now, but it's really fascinating actually for medical affairs in particular, because I think there's quantitative measures, um, Mm -hmm. like you can track interactions, um, but I think the actual value of medical affairs is it's more intangible than that. So what, what are some of the qualitative measures of success for you of the function? I think this is really the one million dollar question, uh, <laughs> Isabel. <laughs> so, I actually asked it this question um, back when uh, my first interview in medical affairs for an MSR role. I had, you know, <laughs> I was so naive back in the days, uh, and I asked my manager, "How are you going to measure me? How are you going to measure that I've been effective at communicating the science of our medicine?" And he's such a smart guy and has been a mentor all my life. And he told me, well, you will see when it happens. So really, how do we measure the impact of medical affairs? The reality is pharma is a business and we have to do it. And despite the large investments in medical affairs and the fact that medical affairs is becoming more and more strategic and externally focused, we really don't see a clear ROI on medical activities as we see for other functions like commercial and R&D. And there are so many reasons for that. And you know, we need to stay, with, we need to work within our compliance boundaries. But I think there is also a great opportunity now with the new technology and data analytics um, to revisit uh, this concept of measuring the impact on medical affairs. But before going there, um, the fact that the ROI is not black and white as in other function, makes us medical affairs leader work harder uh, to communicate the impact that we deliver to the business, uh, the medical and scientific community and the patients. It's almost a, a, a triangle and we need to be able to clearly visualize how our activities are impacting um, business outcomes and patient outcomes. And this, I have to say, requires a lot of discipline as well as openness. Um, to explore data sets that were not in our, you know, um, that were not in our playground. Go back to uh, to what we uh, we just <laughs> talked about. Um, so what I try to do, I try to do in my team uh, is uh, um, before even going down to the metrics, uh, 
um, and the KPIs, really we need to start with the problem and where this problem fits into the um, enterprise priorities. And then we look at, okay, we quantify the problem, we try you know, to understand what's driving it, how big is it, how broad is it. And what's very critical is that we clearly brainstorm how can medical affairs help uh, solve that problem? What is the medical affair contribution? And that brings me to the impact and value. So once we understand what medical affair contribution is, then we say, okay, that's what we're going to do. And that's how we are going to measure success. So it's almost having a conversation um, upfront instead uh, upstream instead than downstream. Everything starts from the strategy and say, this is uh, how I am going to solve this problem from a medical affairs perspective, because as a medical, this is something that just only medical affairs can do. And so that so far those when probably is not perfect, um, but it's a way that is help, helping us to move from uh, quantita- just quantitative metrics uh, to a mm. mix uh, of quantitative metrics as well as uh, um, impact and value. Yeah, and it's so important to have both. And it sounds like you guys are going about it in a very good way, sort of picking the problem figuring out how medical affairs can solve that problem and kind of tracking the value from there. I think that makes a lot of sense. So Luisa, for my second to last question for you, I want to drill down into you as a boss, you as a leader, (laughs) um, and find out a little bit about how you nurture your team. So I know you are a really big fan of hiring candidates into medical affairs with non-traditional backgrounds. But why do you think this is important and what's kind of an example potentially um, of the value this can bring? Yes, I, I am a big advocate of, for, um, for hiring candidates with non-traditional backgrounds, uh, perhaps because I have had very good experience um, with that. But first of all, we really don't have a choice anymore. Um, we are all heard about the great reshuffling, the great resignation, um, but every industry um, is trying to find candidates um, with the great clinical, scientific, and medical affair expertise. Um, we want people, if you're like me, with data and analytic skills. Um, so really, um, demand is outstripping supply. So if we all we do is to look for candidates with traditional backgrounds, jobs would be open forever. Um, so it's also a need. Um, but at the same time, what really makes me excited about having a, a team with um, non-traditional, traditional backgrounds is that when you hire people with different backgrounds, you get more innovation and diversity of thoughts. And especially in our world where things move so quickly, um, we need to stay, uh, we need to be creative uh, and we need to be able to leverage um, each other ideas and build upon each other ideas. And if they are different from each other, it's better. I'll give you an example. I once hired a candidate with finance background as a medical analytics lead. Here is a guy who's really good at modeling financial data for investment banks and now is modeling MSL um, call notes to generate clinical practice and scientific insights uh, um, to help the medical teams build their strategy um, in medical affairs. So it's really looking at those transferable skills um, and ensuring that the people you hire are, uh, have this growth mindset and that curiosity uh, to, to keep learning. 
Sometimes you have to take a risk. And I think risk taking with non-traditional candidates is and can be very productive, kind of what you're alluding to there. One thing I wanted to ask you as well, Louisa, is when these people are within your organization, how do you ensure that they can succeed at the same rate as someone with a traditional background? Yeah, that, that is an excellent question. Um, I, all, I start to talk about development plan from day one, uh, no matter what your background is. And uh, I, I made really clear um, what the expectation is. Um, so definitely being transparent on, the, on what is expected and how to get there is critical. But also it's about prioritizing uh, and say, okay, those are the, the three things that I want you to focus on now and to master. And those are the three things I want you to focus later once you have mastered this. So really being clear on the development plan as well as um, what to focus on. And the last thing that I've seen works really well um, when you hire candidates with non-traditional backgrounds is ensuring that uh, um, they get to know the company and they, they, they quickly build a network um, because it's, um, we have so we work so much cross-functionally, we really need to understand who does what and mm. how those individuals can, you know, and how to work collaboratively. Um, so I always say, um, I remember when I joined BMS, I, I said, okay, every day I'm going to meet one new person. So, and that's what I tell my team, take the time to introduce yourself, understand what other people do and discuss how you can work together. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're not from the farmer industry and you come in, it seems very complex and very overwhelming at first. I imagine you had a similar experience, but I like that idea. And I think that would be valuable to people listening, sort of just get get into the organization, talk to people, find exactly. out what they do, because the more knowledge you have, uh, the more you can connect that ecosystem and yeah, be empowered in your role. So for my final question, and it is time for my final question, um, we always like to end on a lighter note. So I noticed, Louisa, that you moved to the UK to study in Dundee, Scotland, um, earlier on in your career. So I'd love to know, um, I've been to Scotland once or twice, but I imagine it's quite different from Italy, more so than it is from England. So what surprised you most about the Scottish culture when you were there? Yes, I have to say, I, I went to Scotland, to Dundee. I was supposed to stay there for six months, but a full-time job opportunity came up and accepted it because I loved Dundee. I loved oh. living there. Yes. So, and I have to say, it was a little bit tough at the beginning. I felt lost. Um, my English wasn't great. Um, I was very cold. I was constantly cold. Um, but the Scottish people did all they could to make me feel uh, at home. I was so surprised by how warm, friendly, and generous um, Scots are. Um, I, I, went to the, I went to weddings. <laughs> I met colleagues, uh, families. I was invited to celebrate Burns Night. I feel like an adopted Scot nowadays. But, you know, then that, wasn't, that happened right after my master's. And then I went at my PhD. And as part of the MBL program, you have to choose a university partner. So the University of Dundee uh, was a university partner of the MBL. Of course, I chose it. So fast forward four and a half years, went back to Dundee uh, for my um, VIVA, for my you know, PhD thesis discussion. 
and without telling my old colleagues that I was there. So I said, I'm going to go there, do my thing, go to my favorite restaurant, then go home. And it was so amazing because I finished my Viva and all my ex-colleagues were there um, with a bottle of champagne to celebrate my, my PhD. Um, so that was amazing. That's, if, you know, if I go back to your question, what surprised me about the Scottish culture, just how welcoming and friendly and warm uh, they are. Um, so I, again, I feel like an adopted Scottish person. <laughs> what a lovely note to end on. Louisa, thank you so much for chatting with me today. All things medical affairs and a bit about Dundee as well, a bit about the Scottish culture. <laughs> thank you so much, Isabel. It was wonderful. What a fantastic overview of key trends within the medical affairs function and great to hear how immersed Louisa became in the Scottish culture too. I also love the part where she discussed her strategies for not only recruiting non-conventional talent, but ensuring they flourish too. Agreed. So up next, a little while back, we posted a poll on our social media pages asking whether our farmer audience would ever consider turning to TikTok for their social media marketing campaigns. The poll coincided with the Gold Team feature considering the pros and cons of farmer using the platform, and it was a great opportunity to cast the net and get some additional insight. We did receive some excellent responses from this poll, and the overall result was, well, mainly on the fence. TikTok appears to be quite the polarizing platform. Some people were already using it, others were considering it as an option, and the traditionalists were a hard no. Interestingly, it was a very even split across these three camps. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case. Following the poll, we wanted to understand the reasons for people's different stances, so we asked some of our respondents to elaborate on their answers. We did indeed, and we received some fantastic comments to share with you on the podcast. So to kick off, one respondent hesitant to commit to TikTok was Jose Guido Avia, Customer Engagement Transformation Lead at Sanofi. Let's hear what he had to say. I think it's not about immediately jumping into the next best thing like TikTok. Uh, to answer if I would be open to use TikTok for pharma marketing... Um, I think I would first try to understand f uh, and to find out who is my audience, right? Who am I trying to influence? Uh, am I trying to influence HCPs or am I trying to influence patients or maybe caregivers? Uh, who is that audience, right? Because in the end, it doesn't make sense to use a platform like TikTok if my audience is not there. Right. So in this case, let me give you one example. If the HCPs that I'm trying to reach are from generation Z, then uh, maybe they are in TikTok. So if they are in TikTok, then let's use the platform. Right. But on the other hand, if I am targeting HCPs that are millennials, maybe we find out that millennials are in Instagram. So in this case, let's go for Instagram. So it's rather identifying where are they so that we can be present in those platforms. Um, also, the second variable that I would consider is to identify what behaviors these HCPs have in the platform and what content they are consuming. For example, in this case, we're, we continue to talk about TikTok, right? So if we identify that HCPs are in TikTok, but they are not looking for pharma content 
and they are more looking for content for their daily lives or things not related to their job, then if we suddenly appear in the platform with an advertisement, then we are going to be somehow invasive um, because it's not the moment where they are expecting to be engaging with pharma. And I think then we will, we will be even considered spam. So I think this is the way that, uh, that we should be working to identify how can we use the platforms to be present in those moments of truth. And then also finally try to identify the influencers in those platforms so that our efforts are more organic and less perceived as an advertisement. Thank you. Some great insights there from Jose, reminding us that we need to make an effort to understand our audience before diving into new platforms, something I can certainly speak to as a marketing professional. With my marketing hat on, I think I would always consider, is my audience using that platform before jumping in? Absolutely. And it's also, as Jose said, about whether the audience is using that platform for personal or professional purposes as well. Lots of different considerations. And I have to say, Jose's comment on identifying influencers for marketing purposes really stood out. And that sounds like a great avenue to consider too. It's something that Rafael Tolero Calvo, Customer Solutions and Innovation Lead at MSD, also touches on. Well, the world has been forced online over the past two years, and as a result, brands have seen the importance of social media, with 57% saying social media has become more important due to COVID-19. However, with the importance of social media on the rise, the more challenges brands face when utilizing the various platforms. My concerns are arisen in many ways and should be seen as a company and pharma marketeer. With the following questions. Which platform should I use? Why? How? What is my value proposition and objective? Is my target audience there? Am I ready to pave the way? Take this. Of all social networks, the one that has had the most impact in recent months is TikTok. The Chinese social network is the most downloaded application by far with more than a thousand millions active users, more than a video platform in every way. So I will give you my four reasons why TikTok might be the place to be in the near future for pharma marketing. First, TikTok audience profile active users. A thousand millions of people are already using TikTok in the world in 2022, which means a general sixth position. Two out of 10 people use TikTok. These are the figures observed in monthly active users since its launch. Bear in mind these figures. 67% of users are over 25 years old, which means Generation set is the most represented in general, but with the trend that usually affects all generations, with almost as many women as men. The Chinese platform is in a phase of change and adaptation to a wider audience. Take this. In the US, 47% between 10 and 29 years old. We should be aware of the new trends from Meta and see how the Metaverse is evolving to a better immersive and collaborative reality. In Europe, in 2021, there were over 100 million European TikTokers, which is quite a lot. 
Secondly, the number of downloads of the TikTok app. Everyone goes crazy for TikTok. According to Aptopia's annual ranking, the app was downloaded 656 million times in 2021, of which 94 million in the United States. This figure combines data from iOS and Google Play. This makes TikTok the most downloaded app in the world for the second year in a row. Third, the average engagement rate on TikTok. To quickly increase your brand awareness and disease awareness, the pharma marketeers could rely on TikTok. It is the platform with the highest engagement rate. In 2021, Post generated an average engagement rate of 17.9%, while Instagram influencers boasted 3.8%, YouTube 1.63%. How is the engagement rate calculated on TikTok? Simply the sum of interactions, likes, comments, shares, divided by the number of views. Building a strong engaged community on TikTok seems to be easier and faster than on Instagram, especially if you have the reflex to use the influencer. So, depending on the brand life cycle and disease, mainly focus on young generations, this could be a potential channel to engage with them. Four, the last but not the least, short form video content continues to be of the top social media trends. And as a result, more brands are starting to jump on the TikTok bandwagon. The video format has made the application a success with increasingly attractive, creative and entertaining content. The target audience was young people and the bet paid off. Nowadays, TikTok has become an escapable playground for building brand awareness. In fact, pharmacists, physicians, lecturers are getting involved to spread counseling and disease awareness such as HIV, HPV, acne, even vets in animal health. Virality is such that it is essential for brands to position themselves on the platform. At TikTok, we follow trends, we trust influencers, but most of all, we have fun. The most popular content, take this, entertainment, dance, jokes, fitness, home, do-yourself, beauty and care, fashions, culinary themes, hints, tips, pets. So many topics that attract and unite as long as the right hashtag are used for optimal visibility. Whatever the field of activity, the goal is always the same. Increase your visibility, generate more traffic, demonstrate your prestige, adapt your content and message to the platform and develop unique branding. In the end, when in Rome, do you as the Romans? Some really helpful advice from Raphael there for pharma companies looking to use TikTok for marketing and disease awareness. The platform certainly has an incredibly high engagement rate. And if pharma companies can establish their presence on the app, their social media collateral could be seen by a multitude of users. And there was a good tip from Raphael to adapt your content and branding to suit the platform. Again, research is therefore key.
Exactly. Raphael also mentioned the emerging role of the metaverse, something that the Gold team explored in our most recent publication cover feature, The Reality of the Metaverse. So if you've not read that yet, do check it out at www.emg-gold.com. It's going to be really interesting to see how pharmaceutical marketing will make its way into the metaverse. Yes, it's another another one that's a very contentious topic. So yes, a very interesting um, feature there. So while Jose and Rafael are generally for the use of TikTok marketing, after plenty of research, of course, Jennifer Cambuck-Moser, senior principal at IQVIA and co-founder and chief executive of Viva Valle, responded to our poll saying that she already uses TikTok for her marketing purposes. Let's hear from her now. Hi, this is Jennifer Kane, and I want to talk to you about why using a TikTok channel for patient outreach is so important. Number one, short attention spans require short interventions, and TikTok actually allows you to have that short attention-grabbing opportunity. Number two, it's entirely a democratized platform, which doesn't just allow the channel between a manufacturer or industry and patients, but actually between patients and patients. And so this is part of that Um, amplification of voice across all um, those who are actually patients talking to each other and having a chance to coach each other. And last, and I actually think most importantly, is it's fun. We're going to make patient engagement, um, patient learning, um, education, all the way around fun experience. And in terms of user experience, user retention, uh, this is key. If it's not fun, why would we use it? So those are my thoughts on using a TikTok channel for patient outreach. Improving patient engagement certainly seems to be a key takeaway for Jennifer there. TikTok certainly does offer a great user experience for many, and its short form content makes for an incredibly attention grabbing outreach. That's right. I especially like Jennifer's comment about TikTok enabling an amplification of patient voice. Having a platform where patients can interact with their peers is so important. And as she mentioned, TikTok seems to be providing that space, at least for some demographics. So Helena, having heard from our guests, what are your conclusions from this discussion then? I think it's fair to say that there's huge potential, but the pharma industry does seem hesitant to fully accept TikTok as a new social media marketing tool, and perhaps rightly so. Research is vitally important. Pinpointing an engaged audience to target is crucial, and finding the right way to approach the content based on what users really want is also key. Absolutely. And I think it will be good to keep an eye on which companies bite the bullet and make a move into the space in future. And also how companies such as Abvi and Reckitt, who have already been using TikTok, fare in the coming months and years. To read more on this topic, including more insights from Raphael and details of Abvi and Reckitt's TikTok ventures, head over to the Gold website to read our latest feature, Time to Turn to TikTok. The link will be in the show notes. And with that, it's sadly time to end today's podcast. Have you enjoyed this episode, Helena? I really have. It's been interesting to hear more thoughts on pharma and TikTok. I'm in the millennial Instagram camp, I have to say. So learning more about TikTok has been great, especially the tips pharma can take away and the research steps they might need to take before venturing onto the platform for their marketing. Agreed. I also loved hearing from AstraZeneca's Louisa Luciani-Silverman and her thoughts on medical affairs analytics, data generation and creative recruitment. To hear more fantastic interviews just like this one, don't forget to subscribe to Gold wherever you get your podcasts and why not give us a review while you're there? 
Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care and bye for now. Bye.